The era of the real-life whodunit series is upon us. The podcast Serial attracted legions of listeners last year, all drawn to the story of a 1999 murder of a Maryland teenager for which her high school boyfriend was found guilty. HBO's documentary The Jinx follows a reclusive, eccentric real estate heir suspected of murder. Now, all the talk is about the new Netflix series Making a Murderer. Here, the central character is a man by the name of Stephen Avery. He was freed after spending 18 years in prison when, in 2003, DNA evidence proved he did not commit the brutal sexual assault that put him behind bars. A long injustice, it seemed, had finally come to an end in the 10 years that Laura Ricciardi and Moira DeMoss spent filming their documentary series. They would come to know well Stephen Avery and his world. Well, Stephen Avery, um, his family ran an auto salvage yard in rural Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. So this is a part of the country that's dominated by dairy farms, and his family ran the junkyard. And he grew up working on his family's salvage yard. He did not graduate high school. So in that community, they were sort of the marginalized folk, you know, from the wrong side of the track, so to speak. As a teenager, Dimas says, Stephen Avery made a series of bad choices, like burglarizing a local tavern with friends. These are felonies, but when you look at the actual report, it's about breaking in and making a cheese sandwich and stealing some beer. But what turned out to be his most fateful bad choice was his decision to escalate a feud with his own cousin, who was spreading nasty, humiliating rumors about him. One night, he decided he'd had enough. He ran her off a country road and pointed a gun at her he says was not loaded. Turns out she was the wrong person to intimidate. She was married to a sheriff's deputy, and there's certainly a line that he crossed there that it became personal. And by extension, personal to the sheriff's department. Not long after that incident, a woman, a prominent member of the Manitowoc community, jogging along a nearby lake one day, was sexually assaulted and badly beaten. Hours later... Stephen Avery was arrested. The series Making a Murderer follows in great detail how small-town detectives and local law enforcement went about making the criminal charges stick, at one point even ignoring a tip by one officer that a known violent sex offender was a more likely suspect. The year was 1985, and it wouldn't be until DNA testing came along that Stephen Avery would be exonerated. He returned home to a crush of cameras and a family who always believed he was innocent. Oh, hello. How are you? Oh, pretty good. How's it feel? It was wonderful. <laughs> oh, God, save me. You're Soon after this homecoming, news reports started delving into how Avery had been railroaded. And for that, he sued the county and he sued big. His relative Kim Ducat told the filmmakers she believes that move ultimately sealed Stephen Avery's fate. They weren't going to hand that man $36 million. They weren't going to be made a laughing stock, that's for sure. They just weren't going to do all that. And something in my gut said they're not done with him. Something's going to happen. This, by the way, is a good moment to tune out if you haven't yet started watching the series. Because, as we find out, one of the most compelling elements of this series is how quickly Stephen Avery goes from being a local celebrity for his long overdue release to someone who, and it's just two years later, he's accused and goes on trial 
for a grisly murder, which sounds unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, we, we read the New York Times headline, Freed by DNA, now charged a new crime. And immediately we recognized this as an unprecedented story. But what we really recognized in Stephen's story was this valuable window through which to look at our system. Laura here. Um, what also was so fascinating for us was we were trying really to explore the extent to which history might have been repeating itself here. You know, Stephen, in the first case, was arrested the very same day the victim was attacked, in just a matter of hours. He had, I would think, a, a pretty ironclad alibi. He was accounted for every minute of the day before the victim was attacked all the way through the time the you know, law enforcement arrives at his house to arrest him. So there was an interesting parallel between the arc of the first case and the arc of the second case and how law enforcement arguably handled both cases. And that got back to our original question of, has the system evolved? And if it has evolved, is anything now in place that wasn't in place 20 years prior to stop a wrongful conviction from occurring? You found yourself filming twists and turns of new evidence showing up and also of suggestions of manipulation. How did you get that kind of access? It was so public press was all around, but you end up filming moments that are quite explosive. You know, essentially the way we reached out to our potential subjects was to write letters to them, and letters of introduction to tell them who we were, what we were about, why we thought they would have a valuable place in the story. And we were really interested in hearing people's firsthand accounts. You know, we were graduate film students at the time that we started this, and we had no money but what we did have was time. So we moved to Wisconsin. We lived there for nearly two years. So, you know, we were on the ground there to cover anything that was happening, but also there to do research and to build relationships. Do you think Stephen Avery's innocent? Part of the reason, my opinion is, we don't know. There were so many questions about the quality of the investigation itself here. There was a glaring conflict of interest in this particular case. As we talked about earlier, Stephen Avery had a $36 million lawsuit pending against local law enforcement, um, or the county rather, but this county and former members of law enforcement. And here he was back in the same system charged with a serious crime. One of the things I learned in making this film is through all of this and all of these different points of view, the humility to to accept that I don't know. And what seems more important to me is to be able to trust the process. Filmmakers Laura Ricciardi and Moira DeMoss, their Netflix documentary series is called Making a Murderer. 